Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Europeans raise all the cattle, but the Chinese get all the milk. This joke, told in colonial-era Singapore, is indicative of the importance of the Chinese diaspora throughout Southeast Asia. Chinese migrants were miners, laborers, merchants, and traders, the foundation of many colonial cities throughout Asia, but also making sure that their own communities back home benefited. Distant Shores, Colonial Encounters on China's Maritime Frontier, written by Professor Melissa McCauley and published by Princeton University Press, looks at one particular community within this diaspora, the Chaozhou people, also known as the Chuchao people, hailing from the Shantou, also known as Swatou area in eastern Guangdong province. The Chaozhouese traveled far and wide, engaging in trade, commerce, and business, a history that survives today, with many southern Chinese and southeast Asian business tycoons having ties to this migrant community. Professor Melissa McCauley is a professor at Northwestern University, where she specializes in late imperial and modern Chinese history from 1958. Her research focuses on such topics as the interrelated history of southeastern China and Southeast Asia, colonialism and imperialism in East and Southeast Asia, and legal culture in Chinese social history. Her first book, Social Power and Legal Culture, Litigation Master in Late Imperial China, was published by Stanford University Press in 1998. We're joined today by fellow NBN host Sarah Bramal Ramos. Sarah is a PhD candidate at Harvard University that studies Qing China. Today, the three of us will talk about the Chaozhouese people and how their trading efforts out the region challenges the way we think about empire and colonialism. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Perhaps I want to start with a big picture question. Who are the Chaozhouese people and how are they different from other communities in southern China, like the Cantonese or the Fujianese people? That is both a big and a small question. But by the way, thank you very much for uh, having me on your podcast, uh, Sarah and Nicholas. Um, the uh, the Chaozhou people live in eastern Guangdong province. Uh, it's a highly commercialized region of China. Um, they uh, have uh, they are in the in the late imperial period. They were a um, also an administrative region of China. They were a prefecture of the, uh, of the uh, province of Guangdong. Um, but they're also kind of a dialect and regional culture. They, uh, their dialect, the Chaozhou dialect, is, a, um, uh, is related to the southern Fujianese dialect because they're right adjacent to Fujian. And in fact, they've had a very long 
connection to um, uh, Fujinese culture, the Fujinese cultural and, and economy. Um, I should step back for this and say I got interested first in Chaozhou uh, in the course of my first book, which was a, a book on um, on uh, Chaozhou legal culture and how scandal shaped Chinese attitudes about law. And I just happened to found a lot of um, scandalous cases in this southeast southeastern part of China. So I, I did a, a case study of the region and. At that time, I didn't have to distinguish by dialect group. It's if you know, um, well, you're you all study Chinese Chinese studies at least. And uh, G. William Skinner divided China into macro regions, these sort of economic regions, about nine of them, and the southeast coast of China was its own region. Uh, and so, Chaozhou and southern Fujian were part of this larger um, region. And, and so that I did the study um, by this by looking at this macro region of China. But as I was doing that work, I realized that this entire region was had such a strong connection to Southeast Asia. And that's one distinctive aspect of Chaozhou people. But it's also a distinctive act, uh, aspect of Fujianese people or Southern Fujianese people. So as I was doing the background reading, I saw that connection to Southeast Asia. And I thought, well, that would be a great idea for my next project. Um, but then I actually had to make a decision. Should I work on the Fujinese or on the Chaozhouese? Because once you go overseas, then these cultural differences become very important, at least after the 18th century. Um, so Chaozhouese, uh, they are distinctive among many Chinese in that they migrated to Southeast Asia in very large numbers. Uh, and so did the Fujinese and so did the Cantonese, for example, the Cantonese who largely have populated Hong Kong, for example. Um, what made them distinctive was that they're kind of latecomers to the big commercial powerhouse industry of Southern Chinese and Southeast Asia. The Cantonese and the Fujinese had been very powerful for centuries. And although the Chaozhouese had um, a long history of sojourning and trade and migration into Southeast Asia, their big moment comes after the 18th century. So I decided to study this particular dialect group. So Nicholas asked about people, and I'd actually like to ask you about space, uh, because this book really focuses on what you call in the book maritime Chaozhou. So could you just sort of explain that? What is unique about this space? What do we need to know about this space? Right. Well, that you know, gets into the larger argument of the book, and um Thank you for noticing that because it's. I was very heavily influenced by geographical ideas um, when I started thinking about how to study this region, how to do a local study uh, in its global context. How do you study the local in the global? You're already thinking about space and you know shifting from something that's very small, you know, geographically to something quite large. Um, what I did was seeing this powerful uh, tradition of sojourning and migration, I decided to redraw the map of Chaozhou. It's this one place in southeastern China, but in fact, you can't understand its history without reference, certainly after the eight, uh, middle of the 18th century, you can't understand its history without understanding the places to which they migrated, which mostly uh, Siam, or now known as Thailand, 
southern Malaya, Malay Peninsula, including uh, Singapore, uh, Cambodia, uh, uh, the Mekong Delta region just south of Saigon, including Saigon, and the port regions of Borneo, plus Shanghai and China itself. So I redrew the map of Chaozhou um, to include these border, these uh, kind of ever, to, to reflect the, the ever-changing borders of their lived experiences. They didn't, collectively, they did not simply live in Chaozhou. Their lives were translocal, which is to say they were collectively lived across multiple sites. So um, in this case, uh, uh, the, um, so, so the, their economic lives were translocal. The family life was translocal. The religious lives were translocal. So I redraw the map to include this larger maritime space. And I think of the maritime frontier as a social experience. It's not simply just a hard and fast border in the ocean. This is the way the Qing dynasty understood it, um, as Ron Poe has uh, so insightfully described. Um, but uh, it is part of their lived experience and the maritime frontier expands with human movement. So maritime frontier is this kind of geographical framework in, in which I study Chaozhou history. Um, it shifts a lot. Uh, there's Sometimes they spend a lot of time heading off to Malaya. By the 20th century, they instead are start moving more into French Indochina. So the border's always shifting. But the framework, the geographical framework, is this ever-transforming maritime world in which Chaozhou people collectively lived. You said a line in your answer there, Melissa, which is also in the book, that this book is a local study in a global context. And I loved reading that in the book. Um, and I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. How would you describe you know, the kind of global history that you're telling here? Because it is, it is quite different. Um, and you might miss it if you're thinking, if you're a reader thinking of this as just another global history. What kind of global history is this? Well, it's... Um... Gosh, I could talk forever on this. I'm trying to keep these. These are great questions. I'm trying to keep my answers short. What, what, one point I make in the book is one methodological tool I use in the study of the local and the global is the um, historical method, methodology called entangled history. Um, basically, you cannot understand the history of southeastern China without reference to Southeast Asia. And you cannot understand at least aspects of Southeast Asian history without reference to overseas Chinese in general, including not just the Chaozhou people, but Fujianese, Cantonese, Hainanese, Hakka, etc. Um, and so the uh, the process uh, this this entangled history reflects mutual influence, uh, both that the Chinese in Southeast Asia and the Southeast Asians. Uh, the effect of that sojourn in Southeast Asia back on China itself. So um, it's the local is part of the global in, in this in this way, and it's uh, historically connected to it. Um, uh, I could go on, but is that at least addressing that uh, your answer? Yes, absolutely. So I'd like to kind of return to the 
to the Chu Chow people. I'm sorry, the Chow Chowies people. Sorry, the, <laughs> the the Cantonese part of me is getting ahead of myself. But yeah, the 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 uh, Chow Chow people, and you know what's driving them to um, to emigrate kind of across the region, um, and then after they've emigrated, after they they become established as traders as as merchants, what sorts of connections are they building within these kind of these these colonial centers like Hong Kong, like Singapore, and with their homeland? Yeah, what's driving them? Um, you know, there's this argument that China was declining in the 18th and 19th century, um, and I don't I don't dispute that argument. There were there certainly was political decline, and there were a lot of ecological pressures on the region. Um, and one one uh, horrific study I actually argue against is the work of Ken, Kenneth Pomerantz, who's this, one of the great historians of the late imperial period, who wrote a book called um, The Great Divergence, um, which is to say, uh, to, his argument is that across Eurasia, most, uh, most places were heading toward ecological crisis toward the middle of the 18th century. And uh, Europeans managed to evade um, the ecological cul-de-sac, as he calls it, um, because of a couple of reasons, but one of the more important ones is because they had access to colonial sites that gave them access to land, to natural resources, and um, the four Malthusian necessities of land, uh, cotton, and so on, food, and so on. Um, uh, And so what the Chowchowese get out of this migratory experience is basically these opportunities that the Europeans had. More land, it's not as though no one lived there, obviously, but Siam in the 18th century, Cambodia in the 18th century, um, Southern Malaya in the 18th century, there's, there's, there are people there, but they're not overpopulated in the way that Southeastern China was becoming overpopulated. So what the Chajuis get is access to land, access to uh, natural resources, work opportunities for an expanding population, um, et cetera. Uh, but what interested me is why would a good farming family or a, head, a young man in a farming family, because it's mostly men heading overseas in this time, 18th and 19th century up to 1929, uh, why would they leave? Uh, you know, that's a big journey. And uh, one point I make in the book, other scholars have made this argument, Marshall Sollins originally, um, William Sewell at the University of Chicago later on, is that the importance of events in the structural transformations of, uh, of in historical transformations. Um, events, large and small, send people overseas. Maybe a family, maybe there's been a flood. There's a lot of flooding. Uh, my current work is mostly on how the monsoon affects um, social disputes and social uh, change. So there's a lot of monsoon flooding in this region. So suddenly your farm's down underwater. So a couple of the sons might head overseas for work while you wait for the um, water to recede, for example. Or there's a big shedo or a feud between two lineages. And to escape the violence of that dispute, many of the um, younger men would leave their villages for a year or two. Uh, So it's always, or there's a government campaign, either against brotherhoods uh, or, you know, like Tian Di Hui, um, or against piracy, 
or against, uh, uh, um, well, believe it, that could go on and on. And so that campaign drives out a lot of people. But it's always some event that sends them going. So it's not just opportunity, but it's also sanctuary. Um, and it, it becomes a haven for people in times of trouble. Uh, Southeast Asia becomes a haven. Sorry. And, 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 and you mentioned something in your answer that I kind of want to build off of, or at least kind of ask the other side of, of, of the point you raised, which is, which is the Chaojoes were moving to take advantage of the opportunities that the European empires provided them. Um, but then on the flip side, I guess, to ask, um, what did the Europeans get out of this? And maybe not actively, but they certainly tolerated a lot of this. So, so what did they potentially get out of the Chaojoes moving to their various colonial cities? Well, let me first state that the, the first site of major Chaojui settlement was actually in Siam, which was not a colony, but I just mm. make. But it's they. Uh, but the Siamese monarchy welcomed the Chaojuis for the same reason that the um, say the colonial administrators in various places welcomed Chinese in general, including Chaojuis, uh, and say sultans in Johor. The sultans in Borneo, for example, welcomed. Uh, Chinese. They uh, first of all, they had capital pools. Um, they were investment. They had market networks that connected them to China, and they also had connection to connections to labor forces. So, if you're trying to build a colony and you're trying to develop the economy, you want mass migration. The laborers produce value. The value um, raises, um, you know, the uh, revenues for the colony. So, that the the, the just looking at, say, Malaya, for example, the, the British Strait settlements, you bring uh, you make uh, investment and uh, investment for Chinese merchants welcoming. There, it was a free port. There wasn't heavy direct taxation of economic activity, so that drew a lot of Chinese investors, including Chaojuis investors, to uh, Singapore and uh, Malacca and Penang and so on. Um, but then you need a labor force. Uh, one, one thing that Chaojuis overseas specialized in was plantation agriculture. They gained access to a lot of land. And so Chaojuis, for example, uh, in the British Strait, Strait Settlements produced gambier, which was a, had a lot of industrial uses, but it was, for example, used in um, can, uh, dyes and uh, le- dye of leather and so on. Uh, and pepper plantations. In Siam, they were in sugar and gambier and um, pepper and um, um, fruit plantations and so on. And so these these investors have connections with their own native place groups, their own dialect groups back in China. They they encourage laborers to come to China for, uh, to come to Southeast Asia for a certain period of time. And basically you have the Chinese labor, uh, Chinese capital over managing Chinese labor and producing uh, economic wealth for the colony and and also uh, economic wealth for the Siamese monarchy. 
So you're talking there about the reasons why the chajoes are going, but you mentioned previously that you know events are so important and in and in pushing people to go. Um, and one of, of course, the central moments in the book that really pushes people to go is this particular campaign of rural pacification along the Chajo coast in the eighteen um, in eighteen sixty nine and the early eighteen seventies. And you really trace the short term and long term consequences of this you know singular purge, the singular moment. Could you unpack this a little bit? What were some of the short-term and longer-term um, consequences of this event? Yeah, thank you. That, that was a major event in the history of Chaozhou, but indirectly it turned out to be an important event in Southeast Asian history as well. Um, the, uh, uh, it's, it's a long story, but the um, Chaozhou was kind of hard to govern. Um, there was, this is one reason why I found so many scandalous legal cases <laughs> for the region and also Southern Fujian in my um, first book, uh, there was a lot of feuding um, and it, uh, there, there, a lot of villages were powerhouses unto themselves because they were in fact heavily engaged in opium, in the opium trade, opium smuggling, they call it. Uh, but uh, the, um, the opium trade was very remunerative. And so these villages became very wealthy and they became very powerful. And, they weren't necessarily always obedient to the Qing state. I should add that this region was not very enamored of the Qing state because in 1644, the um, Manchus uh, invaded China and set up the, the Qing dynasty. And there was a lot of resistance in this region. And um, the Qing, you know, it took decades for the Qing to actually uh um, forced the Southeast coast to um, heed its will. And um, so uh, it was very bloody. And so the Qing were not very popular in this area to begin with. But anyway, um, so you have a lot of uprisings in the 1850s, most of which uprisings were inspired by the Taiping Rebellion, which was one of the hugest peasant rebellions in well, certainly in Chinese history, but really in world history. Um, it was... it. it had its own causes outside of the Chaozhou area, but it was a very anti-Qing, ideologically it was very anti-Qing and it sparked a lot of coterminous uprisings against the Qing uh, by various brotherhood societies in the Chaozhou area. Well, eventually the Qing managed to suppress uh, all of these uprisings, but they were aware of the fact that the, you know, they hadn't, the Qing had not managed to arrest a lot of the people who had not only risen up against the Qing, but actually killed Qing um, officials uh, of various sorts. So in 1869, the, the Guangdong provincial government decided to um, engage in a lot of state building at the provincial level. But one thing they needed to do was to extend the writ of China, provincial and uh, central governmental law to this region. And so uh, they sent a local, uh, a native son of Chaozhou named Fang Yao, um, family that was uh, of some means in the area. He himself is not particularly wealthy, but he was a member of the actual Qing military, the Army of the Green Standards. And he was tasked with the suppression of um, piracy and feuding and banditry in the region and to collect back taxes and so on. And so for about th four years, he engaged in something called a rural pacification campaign. And that sent... Um, and, and uh, he collected, you know, millions of tails in back taxes, or at least one million in back taxes, uh, basically just 
by usurping the wealth of these people and sending roughly, well, we don't know how many, how many uh, Chinese males were sent uh, exiled overseas. 3,000 people were killed, at least 3,000 people were killed in the, in the Qingxiang, in this pacification. And it's possible that up to 80,000 people were driven out of the Chaozhou area, including areas that were not technically in Chaozhou um, prefecture, but uh, were Chaozhou-speaking areas. Um, but it was certainly in the tens of thousands. So this was a major um, event in Chaozhou itself because it was part of the self-strengthening movement where Fang Yao and the military began to develop the economy and the infrastructure, the area under the writ of the Chinese military. Um, but it also um, just sent so many criminals <laughs> fleeing from the area and they land, ended up landing in places like Singapore. And the Singapore and, uh, and the Straits government just can't understand why they're suddenly beset by so many um, robberies and kidnappings and um, so on uh, until a riot uh, uh, was sparked in, 19, in 1872. And then they found that the arrival of so many um, you know, pirates and uh martial arts experts and um, uh, uh, bandits and so on, arriving at, you know, on the shores of the street settlements without any means of employment, it exacerbated the crime problem there and it led the street settlements government, they were already engaged in this, but it led this, it, it uh, encouraged the street settlements government to um, intensify their efforts to build up a police system, to formalize the police system and other areas of criminal control, which was one step toward formalizing British colonial rule in South, in uh, the Strait Settlements. Um, and you can look, you can, I'm, I'm focusing here on the Strait Settlements, but there, this onrush of so many um, Chaozhouese fighters and swashbucklers, you know, had an effect in, you know, French Indochina, or what became French Indochina as well. So this is one area uh, where I see an entangled history, where an effort to um, sort of uh, reduce the kind of criminality and develop economically in this one area of Guangdong has repercussions overseas within this larger translocal world of Chaozhouese and inclines the colonial government to also engage in the form of state building at the colonial level. That's where I see it sort of entangled state building. But if I can make one more point about this, because I could guess on the, about this uh, pacification campaign forever. But the um, one unstated goal of Fang Yao's pacification campaign was for the provincial government of Guangdong to take control of the opium trade off the coast of Chaozhou, which was, as I said, very remunerative, to take control of it from these villagers and uh, set up basically the equivalent of opium farms in Guangdong, in Guangdong um, province itself. And they would farm it out to reliable um, uh, Cantonese merchants mostly and take control of the opium trade so that the Guangdong provincial government would have a really uh, reliable revenue supply. And so that, again, I see as a sort of a form of entangled state building where you see in the Chaozhou and Guangdong region uh, a resort to the uh, creation of governmental creation of opium monopolies as a, an important source of government revenue. 
So I see this as another example of entangled state building across the South China Seas, where colonial governments and as well as local governments in China create um, what's been called the opium regimes, right? Create a political economy of opium, as Bin Wang, Professor Bin Wang has referred to it. So it's interesting you talk about, about opium, because um, that segues quite nicely into my kind of next question, um, which is, uh, you know, opium is central to the book because the Chaojuis were so successful at being part of the opium trade. Um, they're able to kind of elbow out both the British and the Americans. Um, and so kind of, kind of, can you talk a bit more about, about, about the history um, of the opium trade with the with with the Chow Joeys and kind of what you kind of learn from that history. Yeah, it's an interesting and complicated history. It's um, one point I make is, is that is that the opium trade predated British the British establishment of a colony in South Asia. Um, that that occurred after the Battle of Plassey, right, seventeen fifty seven. But uh, the opium trade had been ongoing in China for you know at least since the Tang, as we've long known. But even before that, I mean, opium importation was was outlawed in China in 1729, which was years before the British colony um, was established in India. Um, and most of that was what was Fujianese and Cantonese, and eventually Chaozhouese bringing the um, opium from Southeast Asia or bringing back the opium uh, habit of you know using opium as a recreational um, as a source of recreation when they would return from China after the sojourns abroad. So anyway, um, this is not to exonerate the Europeans and Americans for being opium um, uh, uh, peddlers in China, but to, to acknowledge that there'd been a longstanding Chinese opium trade uh, before this. And Chaozhouis had participated in that. Um, but what, one reason I find Chaozhou interesting and a kind of a, a kind of reflective of a kind of a modern moment um, uh, in East and Southeast Asian history that that the rise is reflective um, is a very modern thing is because I think a lot of capital accumulation in that Chaozhou case came from their participation in this opium trade. Um, it's a long story, and it's kind of hard to prove that everyone who came back from Southeast Asia was carrying opium, but it, um, it was a very profitable commodity of trade. And when you think about sailors um, on these junks heading off to the south, southern seas to the Nanyang in the 18th and 19th century, they were not paid a wage, these Chinese sailors. They were paid, in, they were given something like seven picoles in trade. So that in fact, they weren't wage laborers. They were a part of this capitalist project or shipping project uh, between Southeast Asia and China. So if you are limited um, to um, 7,000 picos, you're going to bring, yes, lumber, you're going to bring rice, you're going to bring other commodities, but you're going to slip a little opium in there because you're going to make a lot of money by bringing in this opium. There's already a big market for opium in the ports of Southeastern China. Um, so I, I think that that was one major uh, uh, source of uh, capital accumulation for uh, Chinese sailors as well as Chinese uh, shippers. Um, I also think that the rise of the Tian Di Hui and brotherhoods uh, across the South China Seas is reflective of this need to protect 
not only opium importation, but all the importation, but all the money connected to it, all of the silver and gold connected to it. Um, so uh, there's that. Also overseas Chinese uh, uh, merchants, including those from Chaozhou, participated in the colonial opium farms. That is to say, um, they would purchase the right to monopolize the processing and sale of opium in the Strait settlements in Indonesia and so on. And um, that, would, that was a major source of colonial revenue. And this is another reason, getting back to, I think, one of the questions that Sarah asked, uh, another reason why colonial um, officials were happy to see Chaozhouis and other Chinese migrate to their ports, because if you want, a, if you want to um, charge a huge price for the uh, right to farm opium, then you also need to have a large Chinese population in Singapore, in Penang, etc., who are going to purchase that opium and make it worth the while of these uh, opium Chinese opium farmers. So, uh, um, you know, opium became, you know, kind of central to the kind of overseas Chinese culture at home and abroad um, in this period of time. So thinking about um, the opium farms, you mentioned sailors, um, you have all the different brotherhood members. So there's, we're, you're talking, we're talking about the Chaozhou, but really about Chaozhou men, or at least as far as we've sort of explicitly talked about them. Mm-hmm. Um, were there, were, were there any women sojourners involved in this as well? You know, what is the role that gender is playing um, in these, in these various spaces? Yes, as a woman, I always felt shame that I was focusing only on men so much because it was such a predominantly male experience to go overseas. It was not, it was, uh, well, first of all, the Chinese state, you know, uh, um, barred women from going abroad, although they did go abroad until very late in the 19th century. Um, But there was this idea that the women stayed at home. You see this constantly across the centuries. The women stay at home. And one role they played was to stake the ongoing claim to ancestral land. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, the wives and the younger children stay there, and it's to reassure the village and the family that, yes, our ties are to this place, and this is our land too. Uh, so they're kind of like the anchor, as someone says. Well, anchor is not quite a proper term because they're setting sail, but... They, they stake the claim to land at home, while the men go overseas either to work or to trade. Um, so they're very important, even though the process of sojourning became uh, was primarily a, a male project. Uh, one area of female labor that was very important, of course, uh, in the overseas communities and in Shanghai was in the area of prostitution. So this female labor, um, and in overseas and in Shanghai, they kind of recreate family life in a way. Um, uh, the sources talk about these very lonely men, of course, they're away from their families, um, uh, sitting in these brothels while young children sing to them and they're served food and, you know, obviously um, uh, have intimate relations in um these brothels was kind of a recreation of some form of family life as well. But, uh, you know, there were female prostitutes who would go for overseas, overseas to work. Uh, there were actually, um, aside from the Baba, or families who had been overseas for many, many generations and who um, were had basically uh, similar um, gender ratios, 
uh, the world of the overseas Chinese uh, sojourner was very male, uh, except for these brothels. Um, back home, so when I was, uh, one thing I noticed when I was trying to get the gender ratios of villages, and I, I don't have really reliable demographic data until the 20th century, but one of the first things I noticed was that a lot of these emigrant villages were majority female. I mean, in some, some of them were like 60%, but generally they were more like 53% female, which is completely um, runs counter to the gender ratios of much of late imperial and modern or Republican era China, where uh, males usually exceeded females by 20 to 30% uh, because of the family favoring of males um, and of and female infanticide. So I was thinking at first that maybe the remittances and uh, you know the opportunities that the overseas connection offered Chaozhouese uh, meant that there was less female um, infanticide in the region back home. But then, you know, I gained, I gained access to colonial data, um, especially good, uh, good data in the Strait Settlements and found that, um, uh, you know, it's something like 3% of these populations, uh, the Chaozhou population in, say, the Strait Settlements, 3% was female and 97% were males. And then I realized, of course, the only way you can understand the uh, demographic uh, realities of the village back home is in its translocal context. Demographically, life was translocal. Yes, the um, villages back home were predominantly female, but the um, uh, uh, if you expand the borders of the village to incorporate Siam or the Strait Settlements or Cochin, China, whatever, then in fact, the, the, the gender ratios Worked, work out to be pretty much in sync with the normal gender ratios of late imperial China. I would have loved to be in that in the archive when you put these two pieces together. Um, I'm sure that was a very exciting moment. Um, I have a billion other questions about these majority female villages and this sort of split, uh, split village life, but I'm going to hold it and bring us to colonialism. Um, which is uh, because I, we ha we're coming to the end. We sort of have to get there. Um, and you note throughout the book that, you know, from some perspectives, a lot of what you've been talking about, the Chaozhou's expansion into Southeast Asia, their, you know, monopoly of these very, uh, very profitable commodities, it all, you know, might look a lot like what we might think of as colonialism. Um, but I wonder if you could just unpack this. What are, how is this complicated? How is it more complicated than simply saying, ah, colonialism? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I mean, when you look at 19th century European accounts, not just of the Chaozhouese settlements in Southeast Asia, but overseas Chinese settlements in general, they're constantly referring to them as colonial sites. So Europeans can, understood um, Chaozhouese settlements as colonial. And they understood it because it just seemed similar to European colonialism in the sense that uh, it involved access and domination of, of land, or certainly access to land, access to natural resources and extraction of natural resources, opportun work opportunities for an excess population, as Victorian England referred to it, uh, and opening of new markets. So they didn't see that many differences between what they were doing and what the Chinese were doing. And it's interesting because the Chinese intellectuals in the early 20th century also used the term colonialism. Uh, Liang Qichao, the very famous reformist intellectual, 
you know, referred to them as colonialists and uh, thought of their get up and go as just really, he admired it. He, uh, and he, he thought the only problem was that the Chinese state itself should be dominating these regions, not just these families and villages, but the state itself, because after all, in his view, Southeast Asians descended from the Yellow Emperor. And therefore, it was natural that the Chinese should govern them as well. Um, and there was there were other there were many other um, uh, intellectuals at that period who studied colonialism and saw the, and interpreted their own history in this kind of anachronistic sort of way as going forth to conquer these lands for the Chinese modern nation state. Uh, I so you know, I, I see that kind of connection with colonialism, but in my view, colonialism, European colonialism, requires the state. It is heavily reliant on colonial administrations, on armies, on navies, uh, on consulates, on treaty making. It's very formal and it's very expensive. And um, even informal colonialism, uh, which does not involve the colonial administration, as you see in, say, Treaty Port China, uh, it still relies on the European and American and later the Japanese state in that someone has to write those treaties. Uh, those treaties were, were result of war. Those wars were fought by navies and so on. Um, the state was very much involved and the treaties are um, uh, enforced through the threat of the gunboat. Um, that's not the Chinese, that was not the Chinese way in Southeast Asia. There was some violence in certain isolated localities, but the Chinese um, approach to this sort of access to land and resource extraction, in some cases economic domination, uh, was a result of what I call territorialism. Uh, and it's uh, an old geographical term that was common from the Neolithic. It's just basic human behavior with relationship to space. It's spatial behavior. How do humans gain access to the resources of the land? And what the Chinese did was that they did engage in access to land and resources without establishing colonial states. There's no state involved. Instead, you have these informal institutions like the uh, uh, mostly the native place associations, the Huiguan, as they're called, brotherhood societies, business networks, uh, temple networks, etc. And these informal institutions were, I think, a far superior um, institutional approach to gaining an economic advantage overseas. They're, as I said, they're informal, they're inexpensive, they're adaptive. For example, in the 19th century, a major area of migration for Chaozhouis was Malaya. Uh, for a lot of specific reasons, uh, that uh, uh, Malaya became second, a second or a tertiary uh, source, and they began to turn to uh, French Indochina to gain access to the rice, trade. So they didn't have to change a colonial site. They just moved or they just set up a few more Huayguan. Uh, so it was very adaptive. It's very, it was dominated by the people on the ground. And it doesn't create the state presence that leads to people seething and resentment over their colonial oppression. So I think in some ways, this Chinese approach, which I'm calling territorialism, uh, was more efficacious and enduring in the long term. So I have one final question for this interview. And it's to kind of bring this conversation in part to to the present day. Um, what are the Chaozhuis people and that region of China like now? Um, do they still have this distinct identity? Do they still have these 
um, this this community and these kind of ties throughout the region? Kind of, kind of what what's the what's the state of that community today? Yeah, that's a really complicated uh, and important question. I think, of course, everyone still has a Chaozhou identity. They are more likely to call it Chaoshan now because Shanto has become Swata has become such an important city, and so it's more these days. It's Chaoshan is more a common term, but. Um, so yeah, they still have the same identity because it's the dialect, it's a basic local cultural practice, and so on. So they you know they have that identity. I would say the Ch- the Chinese national identity is much stronger now than it was in the 18th and 19th century, um, and that begins to change e- even in the uh, period covered in my book, which goes up to 1929. Um, that begins to change things when the dialect and native place differences, the differences between Chowtoese and Cantonese and Fujianese, they're still there. They still have these cultural and localized identities, but a strong Chinese nationalism began to displace these uh, localized differences. Um, and so I would say that Chinese nationalism is the big change as far as that goes, I'm not only back in Chaozhou, but certainly overseas. Um, in many places, of course, they've completely assimilated into their regional culture, but everyone still knows that their family background is Chaozhouese. I mean, just as anyone who moves to the United States, um, their primary identity usually tends to be American, but you know where your grandparents came from, and they're usually from this, that, and other place. So they still have that kind of identification, too. I still, I, You still have the vast majority of Chinese in Southeast Asia are working people, you know, or small tradespeople. They're not these big famous uh, merchants, a lot of whom I, I, I talk about, a lot of the more famous merchants in the book, but um, they still have a, a very important economic presence in Southeast Asia, which only reinforces my point that I think that, um, that this kind of territorial effort not to create hard and fast colonial states uh, proved to be a more enduring um, approach to uh, economic, uh, gaining economic advantages overseas. So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Melissa McCauley, author of Distant Shores, Colonial Encounters on China's Maritime Frontier. Melissa, I actually have a couple last questions for you. First of all, uh, where can people find your work? And second, uh, what's next for you? You can find my work uh, available through Princeton University Press. (laughs) I have to put in a plug for the press. They did a great job, I think, I mean, just in terms of helping me through all this. Uh, And it's available as a hard copy and um, electronic copy. Uh, Right now I'm in Taiwan, which um, is, uh, you know, practically the only place in China an American can get to right now. Um, I'm working, uh, I kind of was on a... um, on a, a kind of new version of the same project. I'm looking, I'm working on a book called Villages of the Sea, um, War and Revolution in Translocal China. But I'm carrying the story past 1929 and looking at how um, uh, Chaozhou's connections with Southeast Asia account to some extent um, for the social causes of the revolution in, in Southeastern China itself. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. 
before we go, um, I again want to thank Sarah for joining me today as as co-host um, for this book. Uh, Sarah, is there anything you'd like to you'd like to share? Sure. I am still not on Twitter, but I am usually over on New Books in East Asian Studies, another podcast on the New Books Network. So you can find me there. I'm not on Twitter um, either. <laughs> perhaps that's for the best. Um, Twitter. <laughs> so I hear. <laughs> so the Asian Review of Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Write us, recommend us, share us with your friends and want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me today. Thank you both, Sarah and Nicholas. I've really enjoyed it.